not necessarily the navigator vision, although we'll get into that as time allows uh, at, the, uh, at the end of this. We have till 8.30, I believe, so we should do quite well tonight. I may not even take all of that time. But I thought I would start out by just asking the question and, and giving you an answer to it. What is a leader, anyhow? When we talk about a leader, what is that? Well, a leader is a person who can, who can arouse in others the desire to be better people and achieve Christ-centered and Christ-honoring goals. Um, I put that little definition together some years ago. I'd done some study on this on the subject of leadership uh, as a result of uh, being challenged by that when we were in the Midwest, as a matter of fact. And uh, it really occurred to me that that's really true. A leader is someone who can arouse in others the desire to, do, to be better people and achieve Christ-centered and Christ-honoring goals. You see, a person can have all the attributes in the world. A person can be a person of faith or of love or of, of uh, single-mindedness humility, and not be a leader. There's something special about this person who is a leader, and I think, I think the, the, the key to it, he's, he, he knows how to arouse in other people their desires to, to be better people and do Christ-honoring work. Nehemiah is, is probably my favorite uh, one of them, in the, in the Old Testament uh, at least. He's really like that. He, he, he could arouse in other people the desire to, uh, to build that wall and build those gates that were all burned with fire and so on. Uh, you remember the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The walls were broken down. The gates were burned with fire. And God put it on the heart of a man named Nehemiah to go up and do something about that. Um, and he was faced with a rather uh, heavy task of arousing these people to, uh, to get on with it and to be part of the... Of the, of the solution to that problem. Uh, the problem really was the people who lived in Jerusalem with broken down walls and burned gates for years. They were used to it. That was part of the scenery. And um, they'd grown accustomed to these surroundings. There was no big deal about a burned gate or a, or a broken down wall. That's, you know, from their childhood up, they, they saw that. That's what they lived with. Uh, all these terrible surroundings. So what did this man do to arouse these people? Well, he got them together. I love this. He got these people together, and he made a little speech. And he said uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, period. Do you think that he would have aroused those people had he stopped there to challenge them, let us rise and build? I don't think so. I don't think he would have got any kind of response at all, at least a positive response. To them, a broken down wall, a burned city was no big thing. Uh, they could have asked him, well, what's the big deal? Why, why do we want to change? We've lived this way for years. This is the way we've always done it. But he didn't stop there. At the end of his speech, he said, let us rebuild the city that we be no longer a reproach. And he touched an open nerve there. He touched a hot button that we be no longer a, repro a reproach. He says, living like this makes us the laughing stock of the pagans around us. We live in shame. We live in reproach. They mock us. They scorn us. We live in disgrace. And then he said, now in light of that, let's do something about that. And with, as one man, they said, let us rise and build. So he was able to arouse in these people the desire to want to change, to change their surroundings, to do something about this, 
the situation. A leader can arouse in others the desire to be better people to achieve Christ-honoring goals. But the problem is this. That kind of person is in very short supply. And they've always been in very short supply. In Ezekiel chapter two, uh, ch- chapter 22, verse 30, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, and I found none. Here is God on a search. Search for a man, a man among them that could do something. And he says, I searched and I searched and I didn't find any. And in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of him whose heart is perfect toward him. The eyes of God scan the earth to try to find people like this. I sought for a man among them. And as I thought about that, I jotted down four reasons why I believe people like this are in really short supply. One, this person will work while other people waste time. I jotted on a couple of references, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not slothful in business, redeeming the time. Ephesians 5, 16 also talks about fervent in spirit, redeeming the time. So this person will work while other people waste time. Secondly, this person will pray while other people play. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you always laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now think with me for a minute. Epaphras was the leader of the church at a little town called Colossae. Colossae had been uh, ravaged by earthquakes. Um, uh, it had uh, droughts. Their crops hadn't come along. It was, it was, a, it was a second-rate town. At one time, it was, it was a good-sized city and, and, and a powerful city, but now it was a second-rate town. And a man named Epaphras went in there and preached the gospel, and and many of these people turned to Christ. Epaphras, no doubt, was one of the men that Paul had trained. Well, something happened in the the city of Colossae that that, um, made Epaphras want to go down and talk it over with Paul, who was in Rome. So he went down to Rome. And, and, And Bible scholars are divided about half and half. Some, he went down there to say how well things were going. Others say he went down there to to tell Paul how bad things were going and get some advice. Nevertheless, he went to Rome. And what did he do when he was in Rome? Take tours? Buy postcards? Sightsee? Epaphras, now Paul wrote then to the church at Colossae and says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And I jot down the margin of my Bible, there's a leader. Someone who's on his knees down there from this little second-rate town. He's now in the great city of Jerusalem. And where do we find him? We find him on his knees praying for these people. Thirdly, this person will study while other people sleep. And you might just jot down Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, and Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. Meditating on the Word of God day and night. And then number four, this person will undertake the difficult while others take the course of least resistance. And I jotted down Joshua chapter 14, verse 12, where Caleb says, give me this mountain, this mountain, the one filled with giants, the toughest one of the whole lot. He says, I want that one. Years ago, I came out to Colorado Springs to um, be part of the development team out here. As a fundraiser, I was working with uh, Rod Sargent. And... um, 
my job was to drive around and make, make known needs that the navigators had to various ones. And sometimes, of course, I was here in the springs. And um, there was a man named Jim Rayburn, who was the founder of the Young Life Movement. Jim Rayburn taught a class down here at, at our church uh, every week, had a Sunday school class, large class, of course, and they were going on retreat. And so Jim called Rod and said, Rod, do you, you have anybody there that could take the people that were in our class and, um, and teach, uh, be our teacher for the retreat? Well, Rod said, I'll look around. So he came to me. And he said, now, Leroy, um, we have this opportunity to serve Young Life and to serve First Presbyterian Church, the, the Sunday school class down there. Uh, I'd like to have you pray about um, being the teacher at this retreat there at the First Press. I thought, now, I'm supposed to take people who have been taught every week by Jim Rayburn and take them on a retreat and teach them something that would be of interest to them. I thought, oh, wow, I can't do that. So I went to Rod. And I said, Rod, I... Uh, I'm just not the man. I, 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 I couldn't do anything like that. He said, Leroy, I expected you to say that. That's exactly what I expected you to say. I, I've observed something about you. You always take the course of least resistance. You never want to tackle the tough job. He said, I've just watched you around here. And he said, I've seen that in you. Right. Well, <laughs> I took the thing and went out. And I don't remember a thing that I said, but we seem to get along okay for the weekend. So, but you know, at some point you gotta you gotta buckle down and tackle that thing that's really tough. I not always look for the easy way out, and a good leader will do that. Give me this mountain, Caleb said. This one right here that's full of giants. This is the one I want. Now let me tell you two things that leadership is not. Uh, leadership is not a magnetic personality. If you read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you'll discover that Hitler had a tremendous personality. But he was a dictator. He wasn't a leader. He was a dictator. Secondly, leadership is not winning friends and influencing people. That's salesmanship. Now, leadership is three things. Leadership is lifting a person's vision to a higher sight. John chapter 4, verse 35, lift up your eyes, Jesus, and look on the fields, for they're white unto harvest. Here's how this usually works. A person comes to Christ, maybe through a Sunday school class, let's say. A person comes to Christ. And they get involved in that Sunday school class. And that's all they see. They are Christians. The people in the class are Christians. And they get involved in that class, which they should. Um... Then the church brings in a missionary. The uh, missions uh, conference comes to the church, the annual missions conference. So the guy goes to the missions conference. And the first thing you know, this missionary stands up and he talks about some faraway place and the guy's eyes lift a little bit more. And the first thing you know, he's involved as a world Christian. Step by step by step, we've got to get their eyes up where they see a lost and dying world. A leader is able to do that. He lifts people's sights, gets them up, seeing things at, uh, at, a, at a higher level. Number two, leadership is raising a person's performance to a higher standard. To the standard of Jesus Christ. John, I mean, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, verse 37. A powerful, powerful verse. It says, and they were astonished, saying, he has done all things well. 
There came a person who everything he did, he did it well. Jesus Christ was that person. Everything he did, he did well. And when he walked through life doing that, it says the people were astonished. I was going to say astounded. The word is flabbergasted in the Greek. It means out of their heads. They, they couldn't believe what they were seeing here. They were absolutely astounded, astonished, because everything that Jesus Christ did, he did well. Everything. Well, that's quite a standard to shoot for. But we do pray that we'll become like Jesus, don't we? We do sing songs about I would be like Jesus. We want that. And one of those attributes is that there's no slipshod activity in the life of Jesus Christ. Everything he did, he did well, they said. I, I, I remember witnessing to a guy in a dorm one time. His dorm was an absolute pig pen. You, you, his, I mean, his room. You go into his room, it was blotto. Well, I'd go in and sit on the bed, and I would talk to him, and talk to him, and talk to him. And I'd go back week after week, and I'd talk to him. He'd talk. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd listen. We'd, we'd discuss these things. And one day he came to Christ. And the next week when I went down to see him, his bed was made. Then the next thing, week I went in, and his clothes were put away. And the next week his desk was straightened up. He began to have the Spirit of Christ actively at work in his life. And that Spirit of Jesus Christ doing all things well, he just wanted to do things now for the Lord. A leader is able to inspire people to do that. Helping a person's performance rise to a higher stand. Thirdly, leadership is helping a person become far more productive than his or her normal limitations would allow. Bible scholars tell us that Timothy was a rather shy young man in less than robust health, as a matter of fact. And the Apostle Paul took him under his wing. He saw in something in Timothy that probably nobody else saw, so he took him under his wing, and he described his relationship with Timothy as a son with the Father. He has served with me in the gospel. That's Philippians 2.22. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he tells Timothy, Now, Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. You're a young man, but don't, don't worry about that. And in 1 Timothy 5.23, he talked about Timothy's often infirmities. Kind of a sickly young guy, kind of shy and so on. Paul kind of nudging him along. And the first thing you know, we have a verse like 1 Corinthians 4.17. I have sent Timothy, my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy's normal limitations were many. But through association with the Apostle Paul, he became one of the great leaders of the church. Far more productive than people who knew him would have, would have thought he would have become. Now let's look at a leader's vision. What are we talking about here when we talk about vision? Well, the leader knows where he's going and knows how to get there. Jesus Christ did not shuffle through life. Jesus Christ marched through life. He was here, he was going there, he knew it. Behold, he says, we go up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall arise from the dead. I love that. Jesus Christ knew exactly what faced him out there, and it didn't faze him a bit. 
He said, in the third day, they're going to see something they've never seen before. The Son of Man is going to arise from the dead. Luke, now that was Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be raised up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ says, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. So the leader's vision helped him see things that others cannot see, see farther than other people can see, and see before it happens, before other people can see it. Dawson Trotman was, was, was a great example of this. He was a man with a vision. For years, he had been a tremendous witness for Jesus Christ, a personal witness. He was a man who um, made it a practice. Every day, he would witness to somebody. Every day, without fail. That was just a goal that he set. That he set that goal for him. He did not try to put that on other people. But for himself, that was his goal. Well, now he went to bed. Was saying his prayers in bed. The lights out. He had good grief. I haven't witnessed anybody yet today. So he hopped out of bed and jumped on his motorcycle, went roaring down. And uh, I mean, this is just sort of the way the guy was. But there began to burn in his soul something. For him, there was something more than that. And, he, and of course, he led many people to Christ. But he thought there's another step here somewhere. There's another step that um, the for me. And he prayed about it. And he prayed about it. And finally it hit him. Yes, I must be fruitful. I must do that. Out there reaching people for Christ. Be fruitful but and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And that became his vision. And he would share that with other people. The necessity of seeing people come to Christ and then watching those people take those steps to maturity where they in turn can repeat the process in the life of somebody else. He saw that so clearly. He saw that as a means of making a tremendous impact on the world for Jesus Christ. And he would share that with people, and they couldn't see it. They, they, it, would, it, it would go by them. It would kind of phase out. But he saw it, and he gave his life to that. <laughs> I pulled, almost pulled the, um, the fatal error. It was decided that I was going to go to Pittsburgh. I had, I had prayed all night uh, over here at Star Ranch, as a matter of fact. We were using Star Ranch as our, um, as our uh, conference, uh, conference grounds. We had rented it for the week <clears throat> before we had Glen Area, of course. And um, Doss called me and he said, now, Leroy, he said, there are seven places we can use you in Virginia, and I'd like to have you pray about these seven places. Which one do you believe God would have you go to? Because we really need some men out there, some people out there. So I went up into the hills and prayed all night, came down. I was the first, his first appointment that morning. He always had early appointments starting about 5 o'clock, so I had the 5 o'clock appointment since I'd been up all night anyhow. And um, I went in. What do you think? He said, where do you, where do you think God's going to send you? Well, I was all excited. I said, Doss, I've been praying about it. I think Pittsburgh. And he held up a little piece of paper on the back. It had Pittsburgh written on it. So we were in agreement. And then I made the fatal error, almost fatal error. I said, now, Doss, when I get to Pittsburgh, what do you want me to do? He couldn't believe it. He could not believe it. Here was a man ready to go out on an assignment that didn't know what to do. <laughs> and he said, do? What do I want you to do? Be fruitful and multiply. 
Oh, I said, I should have thought, okay, that's right, I'll, I'll, I'll go do that. that, that I, sh- I should have known that, I should have known that. Somehow that slipped me. <laughs> I mean, this was his vision. Let God use your life in that John 15 way, bearing fruit unto God. But more than that, let God take you that second step, that your life might multiply in the lives of others. Seeing things before people. He, Dawson Trotman saw this in such concrete terms that he based a whole life on it. And to achieve that vision, there are three things that are absolutely vital. Must, you must keep your eye on the vision, not the problems. We talked about that at the last session. Um, First Corinthians 16.9, a great door is open to me, an effectual work, but there is much opposition. Okay, there's opposition, but the great door, keep your eye on that great door that's open. See, if the leader begins to preoccupy with problems, you cannot, you're not, you, you can lose that enthusiasm and drive to accomplish the task and wind up in discouragement and defeat. I'm told by people that, that study this that, that mountain climbers, they always chart a course up that mountain so they can keep that peak in view. They're never out of view of the peak. There's always that peak up there watching. I remember a guy named uh, Chuck Dam who was a nav rep down in San Diego and he went to Boston uh, to begin the navigator work up there, as a matter of fact. And he was a boxer, so he decided he's going to win the, the Boston Golden Gloves in his weight, la- weight class. So he'd go down to the gym. Every day after school, he'd go down to the gym. And he'd walk over to the, to the trophy case, and he would look at that belt hanging in there. That belt that announced the fact that he was the winner of the Boston Golden or Gloves contest. And he'd stand there, and he'd look at that belt. He said, unless I did that, I couldn't bring myself down to punch that heavy bag and to punch that... The punching bag and, and all that running and running and your, 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 your lungs burn and your legs ache. He said, I, and, but every day, if I would look at that belt, then I could go down and do that. Well, I think that's what we have to do with the vision. Keep our eye on that and not on all these, you know, the burning lungs and the bad legs and all like that. That's all part of it, but keep your eye on. Okay. Secondly. Preoccupied with minor details is a fundamental imbalance that unfits a great many people for leadership. And absolutely, they're consumed by... See, you cannot ignore details, but you mustn't be consumed by details. You can't ignore them, but you can't become immersed in them. In Mark chapter 16, some women went off to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, it was common knowledge... There was a stone in front of that in front of that tomb that would be far heavier than these four women would, would be able to to, uh, to do anything about. But they did not have their mind on that stone. See, had they had they said to among themselves, "I wonder, I wonder what we should do about that stone." I don't know. Who, I mean, it's going to be early. And we, there's going to be nobody to move, and, 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 and they would have gone back and gone to bed. I mean, there's no way to get that. But the, but they thought we will do our part. We'll go down there and anoint the body of Jesus Christ and somehow or another God will move that stone. And God did. So if, we, if you get all preoccupied with the details of the thing, then you can get kind of lost in it. A third thing that can cloud your vision is a glorious opportunity that has absolutely nothing to do with what God wants your life to accomplish. A grand and glorious opportunity. For about, um, well, since 1960, yeah, 1960, 
until two years ago, uh, when Lawrence Sandy was the president of Navigators, I was his assistant. And then um, when he resigned from that from that post, well, I was no longer his assistant, obviously. But during those years, 20-some years, I guess, or whatever it was, I was his assistant. And every now and again, Lauren would invite me into his office. And he said, there's somebody coming from such and such a mission or such and such a group, and they want to talk to me, and I'd like to have you in there with me. Okay, so I'd go in, and I'd sit over in the corner. I'd just sit there and be quiet and let these... And every one of them had an idea for the navigators. They said, now, we believe the navigators should do this. Or they'd say, we believe the navigators should do that. And they'd lay out this glorious plan or this glorious idea of what the navigator should do. And Lauren would listen with great interest. And they would pray about it. And he and I would pray about it. But Lauren would say, I'm not just certain how that ties in with our fundamental mission. How does that... And he would always go back to maintaining that objective that God had burned in his soul. Glorious opportunities can be used, you know, to divert you. So... That's one thing we have to watch out for, these glorious opportunities that come along and um, but really have nothing to do with what God has, has, has laid his hand on our life to do. Now, <clears throat> when a person has a vision, he soon begins to discover that um, two can get more done than one. So he begins to find someone to share that with. And the first thing you know, there's two of them. And then uh, these two begin to share it with somebody else. And Jesus Christ had his little band of 12, and Paul had his little band of men. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. David has his band of mighty men. 1 Chronicles 11, verse 9. And I ask myself, why did these people follow these people? What is it that causes people to want to follow somebody else? I jotted down, I think, three things here on that. One. First and foremost is his walk with God. Here's a person who comes into a city and it becomes evident to the Christian community that this guy really walks with God. He is deep in the Lord. And there are a few people who say, you know, if I, if I would get next to him, if I'd get next to that person, my life would be deep in the Lord because I'd learn those things that this man has learned. And I've watched, whenever we have men, uh, great men of God, like Dr. Oswald Sanders and others who come, and some of them teach in the LB, LDI, as a matter of fact, when they come, Randy, you remember that? When men like this show up, there's always a little cluster of people around the table asking questions and pumping them. Not necessarily because this man has done great exploits, although he has, but because of his walk with God. He's a deep, deep man in God. Well, if we aspire to leadership... The first place we start is our personal walk with the Lord. His personal walk with God. Jot down a verse, 2 Chronicles 15, 9. 2 Chronicles 15, 9. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him in abundance when they saw the Lord his God was with him. When they saw that the Lord God's hand was on this man, when they saw the Lord's God was guiding this man, leading this man, this man lived a close walk with God, it says men came in abundance to that man. In abundance. It was his walk with God that prompted that. So, we start with our... Then secondly, 
People follow this leader because he has a vision and is able to communicate it. He knows where he's going. He's got an idea. God has given him this thing. I, uh, I went to Pittsburgh to uh, begin a navigator work back there. And uh, shortly after I was there, Dr. Bill Bright wrote a letter to Dawson Trotman and said he had this vision of uh, a campus ministry, but he had no men to start the thing with. So he asked Doss if there were some guys around that maybe Doss could loan to, to him to get the thing going. So um, Doss said, sure, you bet, we'll find some men. So I think he got 13 of us together. Didn't get us together, he wrote to us and said, here's this man with this vision. And um, starting this, this, high, this collegiate ministry, Campus Crusade, um, would you be interested in joining in and helping? Well, of course, I said, sure. So... Um, Doss passed the word to Bill, and Bill flew to Pittsburgh and moved into our home and lived there for three days, and, and um, all day long, he would take me out, and he would, we would do something. He would, he would approach somebody and, and, and use this particular method of witnessing, and then he'd look at me and say, do you think you can do that? I'd say, yeah. So then we'd go into a fraternity house, and Bill would preach a very simple little gospel message, and, and we'd, the first night we were there, we saw the captain of the soccer team, the, the, uh, you know, the goalie on the soccer team, the captain of the swim team, and a young pre-med student come to Christ in, that, in, in the Sigma Chi fraternity. That for, so then Bill turned to me and said, do you think you can do that? I said, well, yeah, I guess. And so after three days, he left. Um, he had a vision. had a vision of reaching students for Jesus Christ. And if you go around the world these days, you'll find thousands and thousands of people brought to Christ um, during that, uh, since Bill has started this, little, this, this ministry of crusade. Well, I had a problem. I knew what to do now. I knew, I knew how to do these things, but I wanted to make sure that God's hand was in this thing on my life and I had my direction. So we were living in this Presbyterian manse. Remember I told you about moving in with this single guy, the basement, first floor, second floor, and then the third floor up here, kind of an attic up here. Nobody ever went up there. So I went up there and I spent three weeks on my knees before God, uh, praying that God would make it clear to me now precisely how we should approach the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, in, 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 this, in this ministry. I wanted my directions from the Word. So I would, I would read the, the Word for two or three hours, and I would pray for two or three hours, and I would read the Bible. And I, and I spent three weeks doing that. And then, from 1 Samuel chapter 14, as clear as a bell, God gave me my simple, clear directions of what I should do, and, and I went out and did that. I wanted it from the Lord. I wanted to make sure that God was in this thing, that God was speaking to my heart about this. It wasn't just something I got excited about, but it was something that God was really in this thing for me. So my vision became very clear, and I went out, and, and, and God used those days. Now turn with me, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10. You with me now? Acts 16, 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man, of, a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. No, he hadn't. He called Paul 
a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And it says here, as soon as he had seen the vision, we uh, gathered that God had called us to go and do that. A man with a real vision for God, who knows where he's going, a man or a woman, I, I'm, I'm using the word man here, but a, a man or woman who knows where they're going, have that deep walk with God, know how to do that ministry, have no problem at all getting followers, because he'll be a leader. That's what a leader will be. He'll, he'll be, he'll be. Okay. Now let's look for a moment at the members of the team that this young man David had. And I had a whole bunch of them written down here. I'll just take a couple of them. Let me tell you a little bit about a man named Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. First um, Chronicles 11.22. Benaiah, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also, he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. If you can imagine being in a pit with snow on the ground, jumping around with a lion down there, the man did that, and he went down there and, and, and dispatched the lion. First Chronicles eleven twenty three. He slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature. His spear was like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him and with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. Then you go over to First Chronicles twelve thirty two. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, kind of a think tank here. If you had put Benaiah, who was able to go down, fall down into a pit where there was a lion and it was snowing, and come out of it alive, and go up against this great Egyptian, this big Egyptian with all, with all these things that he had, his big spear and so on, had you put him in that think tank with these brains down there, he'd have been out of his element. He'd, he'd, he'd have sort of felt self-conscious down there. He wouldn't have quite known how to handle himself. At the same time, you put these think tank guys down in a pit with a lion, and they'd be a little out of their element, you know. So a good leader knows how to take the men that come around him now and put them in the right place to help them discover their place with God. And again, Randy, I, I, I appreciated that, uh, that, that word about the LDI, how, how they struggle to do that, to help us really get on track to know exactly what it is that God would have us to do. And then we're told that these men had become mighty men. Over and over we're told they'd become mighty men. We're told what they had been. They'd been disgruntled and disheartened and in debt. They were, the, they were a ragged bunch. But just after a little while, and they were known as David's mighty men, the association with this man David. I'd like to have you turn with me. One, yeah, we have the time. First Chronicles 20, verse 4. 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4. <clears throat> 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4. came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibichai the Hushathite slew Sipei that was of the children of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines. And El Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lamai, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature whose fingers and toes were, were four and twenty. 
six on each hand and six on each foot. It's interesting what the Spirit of God chooses to show, you know, include in the Bible here. Six on each foot. And he also was the son of a giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, slew him. These were born under the giant at Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. How many giant killers were in the army when Saul was the head of the army? None. Nobody. In fact, the only one that could go out and attack the giant was a young guy who brought some groceries to his brother, David. Now David is, 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 is the leader of the army. He's the leader. And what do we find? We find that giant killers have now become a dime a dozen. I can hardly even pronounce their names anymore. I mean, they're so common. It is so common to be... What's happened? A giant killer has taken over. It takes one to make money, to, to make one. So as we think about leading, you've got to start back with your own life, your own walk with God, your depth in God, and let God lead you along step by step, and he'll bring those others along your path that, uh, that he wants there. Now, 2 Timothy 2, two we, we, we quit with this. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. The thing that you, Timothy, have learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who in turn shall be able to teach others also. That, in a nutshell, is what the navigators are all about. And there's a tremendous power in that simple little concept of one man taking another and so on. I was up at a theological college in Canada, speaking up there for two weeks at a, um, uh, some spe- uh, special uh, sessions that um, it was on a graduate level. They brought in some pastors and they brought in some other uh, people doing graduate work. I was supposed to teach on disciple-making. And so uh, I had prepared some, some talks on the matter of disciple-making and so on. And I was teaching in the morning, then in the evening, but the, all my afternoons were free. And this theological college had a library that wouldn't quit, a big, great, beautiful library filled with theological volumes. And I don't get exposed to theological books all that often. So I was, you know, I was, I loved it. I would go over there. I'd spend every day over there in, in reading these books looking up all kinds of stuff and so on. And I came across a book where a man asked a question. The question was this. What would you have if one person over here led a person to Jesus Christ every day of his life? What would that result from? Well, the result, you know, I, I jotted it down on my notes. At the, at, at the end of the first year, there'd be 365, and then the second year, and then the four, third year, and so on. And, I, and I, my eyes went down to year 32. By the end of year 32, from this man over here, there would be 11,680 people in the kingdom of God as a result of that one life. Well, I was excited about that. I thought, that's terrific. Then, by way of contrast over here, he asked this question. What would happen if this person led someone to Jesus Christ and then stuck with that one person that they led to Christ all year, just, just one person, at the end of year two, there would be two. There would not be 365, there would be two. The person the person he led to Christ. At the end of year two, there would be four. Then at the end of year there and so on. Get the idea. And my eyes went down to year 32. 
using this system over here, the Second Timothy 2.2 idea, the multiplication process, you would not have 11,680 people in the kingdom. As a result of that one life, one year, then two, and so on, there would be, at the end of year 32, there would be 4,294,967,296. Well, I'm for that too. I mean, I'm not against any of these things. If someone wants to go out and lead someone to Jesus Christ every day of their life, I, I would cheer them on. But if you give me my druthers, I think I would rather have that be fruitful and multiply thing go, going for me here. Or I would lead the person to Christ and stick with that person and watch that person grow and then we'd split and there'd be two, four, and so on. And so on. That was the vision that God gave this man, Doss Trotman. And Doss was able to communicate that to us and get us excited about it. I remember going to my first Navigator conference. It was in Lake Iduhapi in Minneapolis, or just outside of Minneapolis. I was a young guy. I could barely speak the English language off the farm in Iowa. Spent a hitch in the Marine Corps, and I wasn't all that... You know, you wouldn't look at me and detect anything of a Christian worker over there or anybody that would do anything for the Lord, for sure. And so I was kind of sitting back over here, hiding in the corner, listening to Doss, uh, who himself was a truck driver in a lumberyard. And um, I listened to him. And my heart began to pound. And I began to think, wow, there'd be, even, there'd be room for a guy like myself in that, in that, in that idea. I wouldn't have to know how to go out and do all these. Just, if I could just lead one person to Christ. Oh, God, there'd be room for me in that. There'd be room for me. And um, I got excited. So I went home and I told Virginia about this idea. She got excited about it. And the next morning, when I woke up, guess what I was thinking about? That God could take my life, my life, and use my life to bring some glory and honor to, to his name, to use me to lead people to Christ and so on. I, I, I was really excited. The next morning I woke up, guess what I was thinking about? That idea that God could take a guy like myself and do something with that life. Guess what I was thinking about this morning when I woke up? <laughs> Maybe the influence of this conference, I don't know. But I was thinking, oh, Lord, use me. Just my one... You know, people say, Leroy, what's your long-range goal? Well, I don't have much long-range goal. I'm, I'm 64 years old now. I don't have much long-range goal left. <laughs> so when they say, what's your long-range goal? I'll say, to lead, some, to lead one more person to Jesus Christ. That's my goal, to lead one more person to Jesus Christ. And then stick with that person, help that person grow so that person can, in turn, repeat the process. See, all of us can do that, couldn't we? That, that's, not, that's not out there. That, that's not reserved for a bunch of superstars. That's for ordinary folk. That's for people off the farm in Iowa. You know, that's just ordinary people out there can do that. But that vision has got to burn in our souls to the point where we really believe God that he can do it, can touch my life, and through my life accomplish those great purposes that he wants to accomplish in this world. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we pause and thank you tonight for the fact that as we've looked at this idea of what leadership really is, helping people, to get their eyes off themselves, to get their eyes on you, their eyes on something that you would have them to do. Dear God, I pray that each of us might have that joy of having that kind of influence on someone of our friends or our relatives or whoever it might be, someone down at the club or someone where we work. Lord, give us that burning desire to be used of you 
the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.